Beyond politics and above religion, a moral authority exists known globally as the ageless wisdom. It's the study of consciousness, the mystery of awareness, which cannot be measured, yet will not be denied. This podcast from Michael Benner's Wisdom of the Soul class features weekly lessons in metaphysics, mysticism, and esoteric philosophy. Those who attend live and free of charge on Zoom may also participate in group meditation and Q&A. Register for our newsletter at michaelbenner.com. Welcome to the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School with Michael Benner. Good morning and welcome to today's episode of Wisdom of the Soul. This is sort of part two of a class that we began last week with our discussion of the Sermon on the Mount, and in particular, the introduction, summary of all of Christ's teachings, the Beatitudes. And there were, or are, eight Beatitudes, which we reviewed last week. And if you've yet to hear that, it's a podcast and also streaming on our YouTube channel. Uh, You can always find us with a Google search, just Ageless Wisdom Mystery School. Uh, that's the best way to find all of the material. This class, which is almost one year old now, podcasts, I have over 500 episodes. That's like 12 years old. And um, if you search for Wisdom of the Soul or some other iteration, uh, you're not going to be successful as just searching Ageless Wisdom Mystery School on Google or open your favorite podcast app and Search Ageless Wisdom Mystery School. Same thing with YouTube. We benefit if you subscribe on YouTube. Also, subscribing on your favorite podcast player uh, supports us, helps us, lifts us in keyword searches. So, uh, yeah, I get an ego stroke too, but that's not the important part. The important part is uh, if you can rate and review and subscribe, we get a benefit from that. We YouTube and the various uh, podcatchers will lift us in those searches. So thanks for that. Uh, I got some very nice donations this week. and very much appreciate that. Helps defer our internet costs. Today we're going to do the Buddhist version, I guess we could say, of the Sermon on the Mount. Does Buddhism have a similar how-to guide? Remember, we mentioned last week that Christ was really not interested in religion. He uh, he had some rather harsh things to say about religious leaders. Uh, in Matthew, uh, Christ even says, uh, religious leaders crush you with their rules and their dogma. So Christ really, I mean, he was not a Christian. Uh, Buddha was not a Buddhist. They're mystics. And so just as the Sermon on the Mount is a kind of an instruction manual or a, or a how-to guide, so too the Noble Eightfold Path. So after our opening meditation, I'll outline briefly the Four Noble Truths, the cornerstone of Buddhism, and then we'll dwell upon the fourth of the Four Noble Truths, which is the Noble Eightfold Path. That's the real how-to Uh, Manual of Buddhism. It's all in there. Everything you need to know about Buddhism, and it's expansive, can be found in the Four Noble Truths, and in particular, uh, the how-to part of it, the fourth one, the the Eightfold Path. Pretty cool. So you'll be able to compare and contrast, and you you can be a secular Buddhist. It's not really a religion, though some practice it that way and still love your Christianity or your Judaism or your identity as a a Muslim or a Jan or a Sikh or whatever, an entheist, a a Neoplatonist, whatever rocks your boat. I like collecting them all. I'm very much a cherry picker, and I embrace what resonates as true for me and logical. We're often about developing intuition, but let's not forget our friend logic. Uh, Plays a very important part, very important role in understanding uh, spiritual virtues. That's really 
what is spirituality, but virtues, ethics, and morals, and attempting to refine the self, our sense of self, to be better. And uh, others benefit from that, and not surprisingly, we do too. So that's what we have on tap for today. I very much appreciate you being here with us live whenever you can. And uh, let's do our opening meditation. So if you get comfortable in your chairs and sit up straight, though certainly you can lean back and allow yourself to be supported by the back of the chair. Feet flat on the floor, that's important. It's a grand awareness. You're a spiritual being. You're made for this. All right, let's talk, uh, first of all, about the uh, Four Noble Truths. And I'm going to skate through the first three and uh, then dwell upon number four of the Four Noble Truths. Again, all of Buddhism is contained in the Four Noble Truths. It's pretty cool. But having said that, let me hasten to add that this is still a, an enormous body of knowledge and understanding, one that never ends. You can devote your entire life and every hour of the day to the study of the process of awakening. And as awakened as you become, and as clear as things uh, become for you, there's always more. In fact, you begin to ask better questions. I heard a story <laughs> about a Sufi master who spent many, many years studying the wisdom, wisdom of the ages. And uh, he had quite a profound understanding of the truth of things when he died and passed over and he approaches as the story goes the threshold the gates of heaven of paradise nirvana and uh, an angel says uh, hold on there buddy before you come in through these gates into paradise prove to me that you are worthy prove to me that you understand sufficiently the truth of things and the Sufi master says, hold on a minute. How do I know you're who you say you are, this great archangel, and not just some figment of my imagination, of my deranged sense of being, of, of my confusion and worry and doubt? Before the angel can respond, a voice from inside shouts out, let him in. He's one of us. A story I like a lot. There's always more. This is very Socratic. Remember when Socrates was on trial in Athens for corrupting the youth of Athens? The prosecutor said, So, you are said to be the wisest man in all of Greece. How could this be? Prove to us that you're the wisest man ever. And, uh, Without hesitating, Socrates said, well, I am the wisest man because I know nothing. And those of you who believe you understand are fools. So, in the Socratic sense, and the Sufi sense, and the mystical sense, uh, the sense of what we call panentheism or the perennial philosophy, the more you know, the more you realize you do not know. The more you know, the more you understand, the better questions you ask. And there is no end to that. We talk about today the Noble Eightfold Path. It is a pathless path. Not that I want to speak to you in riddles, but there is no destination. It's an infinite, endless path. It becomes more and more wondrous all the time. First of all, I want to quote Buddha himself from one of his sutras and remind you that Buddhism was an oral tradition for 500 years before anybody began to write it down. In that sense, it's quite surprising that we 
have these teachings, these sutras, the Dharma, so-called the teachings, and uh, that there's such a consensus. The stories of, of Christ in his teachings, like Sermon on the Mount, which we talked about last week, those were only 80 years old before they started being written down. The first Gospels began 80 or 100 years after the death of Christ, the crucifixion of Christ. So we do have these words, and yet they're kind of a consensus or an agreement of what was said by the living Buddha 2,500 plus years ago. And one that I want to call your attention to, he simply says, uh, forgive the pronoun he, he, she, they, not going to get caught up in pronouns. He who walks in the rightfold noble path with unswerving determination is sure to reach nirvana, which is enlightenment or understanding. Again, a sense of uh, heaven, except Buddhists are very clear that there are no places, right? There's no separation. There are no places. So to go to heaven or to go to hell, and Buddhists do believe in, in hell, they have a couple of levels. They have a, a, a deep hell, and they also have a, a kind of a hellish place called uh, the hungry ghost, where you have these very strong desires and appetites and thirst that is never quenched. And all of us know a bit of that. The fact that our desire natures are never fulfilled, not for very long anyway. And then it's on to the next desire. What a trap that is. So, um, the Four Noble Truths are where Buddhism begins and again contain the essence of all of the teachings. And the very first Noble Truth is that you shall know suffering. Seems like an odd place to begin a philosophy, much less uh, a religion. Many people practice this philosophy of Buddhism as a religion. Many others are secular. You shall know suffering means basically sickness and injury, aging and death. Not merely your own sickness, aging and death, but all around you. When your little kids, your grandparents die, your pets die, your friends' grandparents die. And then uh, a couple decades later, your parents start to die, and your friends' parents die. And uh, so it goes. And as we get older, our friends begin to die, many of them much too soon. So it's not. Merely, when Buddhists talk about suffering as sickness, injury, aging, and death, it's not just our own suffering. It's that we're naturally compassionate and empathetic beings, and life is full of suffering. There's even a passage in Genesis around the story of Adam and Eve where, where God says, Now ye shall know suffering. Christ on the cross, what is that? But a demonstration of a willingness to suffer well, to pick up the cross and carry it, and to, uh, to account for the fact that this is not a bed of roses. And, and even if it were, beware of the thorns. There is beauty, like a rose, yet there is the thorn. Be careful. You will suffer. The second noble truth is that most of our suffering, beyond sickness, aging, and death, is self-imposed. It's the result of our desire nature, of an attempt to acquire enough material stuff or enough status, position, uh, leverage to accomplish high degree of acceptance from others in the world a false sense of power and superiority and domination, again, through money or, or status. And that 
all of us want to be happy, but we continue to do things that cause our suffering. <laughs> what a tragedy. There's a great reason to develop your compassion for yourself and for others, that in spite of our best efforts, we remain seduced by this treadmill existence of, gosh, if I only had this, then I would be happy. And we defer the happiness that is sitting right here, right now. I mean, the profound ecstasy of the, of the beauty uh, experiencing the miracles all around us because uh, I need a new car. And maybe for some very practical reasons you need a new car, but is it the car you want or does it have to have um, a street appeal, a <laughs> curb appeal, in the house you call it curb appeal? Does it matter what other people think about the car that you drive? Is it a mode of transportation to get from A to B or is it a status symbol? And uh, what are the other objects that we need that we think will make our lives easier and more convenient? And then you run out of space on the kitchen counter. It's like, my God, the microwave and the microwave oven and the air fryer and the Cuisinart and the juicer and the toaster. and the, I'm running out of room on the counter for all these conveniences. I think it was a Saturday Night Live routine that I saw once years ago where Dan Aykroyd or somebody is uh, advertising the newest handy-dandy a device for the home, the broom. And he holds up this broom and he talks about all the features of the broom. Nothing to plug in, no bags to empty. And he, he's completely reframing how convenient a broom is. I, you know, I'm not above in the, any of this. How do I know any of this? But having suffered it myself and I continue to feel the attraction, to feel the appeal. Amazon is a drug. Buying the package arriving at the doorstep. Oh boy, it's Christmas. I forgot what I ordered. What's in the box? Let's hurriedly rip it open. Oh boy. And for a few moments, we're excited. But it never really fills us. Double truth number two. Most of our suffering is self-imposed because we're not aware of this uh, the way this desire nature runs us. Double truth number three, there's a way out of all of this. To, uh, through meditation, and the practice of mindfulness in your daily life and affairs, developing the virtues, studying the mind, pursuing wisdom, that we can awaken to the point that we can be free of suffering. That which comes from our desire nature being unfulfilled, and even that which certainly seems imposed upon us beyond our control, we can learn to suffer more elegantly, more gracefully, or exquisitely through non-attachment, experience the suffering, but having a different relationship to it if you can imagine such a thing. And the fourth noble truth is the noble eightfold path. This is the how-to. And these eight points fall into three different areas. Again, this is the summary of all the Dharma. And I should explain the three jewels, the Buddha nature, which is Christ consciousness, expanded awareness, nirvana, realization. The second jewel is the Dharma, which is the teaching, uh, the principles. And then the third jewel is the Sangha, which is your community. And it's uh, rather the trinity of Buddhism, if you will. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Father, Son, and Mother of Buddhism is the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. So when we look at the Eightfold Noble Path, the first two points have to do with wisdom and the pursuit of wisdom. The next three, number three, four, and five, are the morality. This is the heart and soul, the center. 
of the Eightfold Noble Path. This is the, uh, the embodiment of virtue, of ethics and morality. And then the final three are the study of the mind, the little games that the mind plays. And we've done some classes, which I hope you'll find valuable from a couple of months ago, late last year, on the nature of intrusive thinking, task-related thoughts as distinguished from task-unrelated thoughts, how logic is different from intuition. That's all part of the study of the mind. So let's go through this, and uh, I'll leave some time at the end for Q&A. So the first noble truth is sort of, again, uh, well, it's the beginning, but again, there is no beginning, there is no end. When I say beginning, I mean the first noble truth embraces all of them. And you'll notice how these overlap. You'll notice, hopefully, a flow as we move through these eight steps. Uh, they're not discrete. They're not separate. They really overlap and flow into one thing, which, again, you know, is in keeping with the realization that there is only one thing at work at all times. And that's the essence of the uh, first step in the Eightfold Noble Path which is right view, or wise view, or wise understanding. Commonly, it's called right view. And it really begins with the question of, what shall we do with this life that we've been given? What am I going to do with this? Uh, not merely in career or vocation. Not merely in avocation or spare time but in our relationships with other people and our relationship with ourself and the universe. What are we to make of this life that we've been born into, barely remember growing into, there's only little tiny pieces of our past that we recall. What are we going to do with it? Who are we? Why are we here? You know, basic philosophy, philosophical questions. And again, at the risk of repeating myself, I want to emphasize the fact that one of the common links throughout humanity and the animal kingdom, and arguably, <laughs> arguably the plant kingdom and the mineral kingdom too, but certainly the animal kingdom, including humans, is that we all want to be happy. Every animal will run away if you try to capture it. It does not want to be captured and controlled. It does not want to be killed. Even insects will scurry away. That means they are sentient. They want to live. They want to enjoy their lives, whether they're insects or animals or humans. Humans, however, have this special layer of second thinking. Animals evolve to a particular level in the image of the creator. That means we can think about our thinking. We can reflect upon our emotional feelings. We can, though sometimes we refuse to, be conscious enough to consider the consequences of our behavior before we do the behavior. If only we did that more often. So we all want to be happy, but we continue to do things that cause us to suffer. And then we spend our lives looking outside of ourselves for who and what is causing the suffering and attempt to control them. There's a story in Buddhism about a man who, <laughs> about a man who comes home drunk. I mean, way drunk. And he stumbles in the house, and on his way, he falls down, tumbles down the staircase, gets sort of battered and bruised and abrased and cut up and curses himself, continues back into the house, goes to the, to the bathroom and washes his cuts and his bruises attempts to put ointment and band-aids 
bandaged them and finally tumbles into bed. He wakes up the next morning, his wife is yelling at him, cursing him for being such a worthless drunk. And uh, he said, I wasn't drunk. How, uh, uh, what makes you think I was drunk? And she said, because you put the ointment and the bandages on the mirror. That's us. We're blaming everybody. Except ourselves. We don't want, we don't want responsibility. Why would I be the cause of my suffering? Why would I do that to me? Well, that's a pretty good question. We want to be happy, but we keep doing things. It's our desire nature. It's our sense of attainment that we ought to be able to get someplace where everything is going to be good, that we can finally finish that to-do list. Hey, nobody's ever finished their to-do list. All right? Even if you don't write it down, everybody's got a to-do list or a I wish or I want or goals or dreams or bucket lists or whatever. Nobody's ever... You get close and the list fills up. We are our own worst critic, our own worst enemy. So stop. <laughs> stop blaming that which is outside of you. This is right view. This is an understanding that everything is connected. That if we understand karma and we understand cause and effect, we will begin to see that life is a reflection of our awareness, of our consciousness. Life is a mirror. Life is a two-way street, but most of us emphasize the side that's being done to us. And everything that happens, we say, well, this happened to me. Things do not happen to you. Things happen. And we take them personally. Didn't happen to you just happen. Part of right view is understanding that there is no separation, something we keep coming back to because it is such an important point. There is no birth and death. There is no beginning and end. We seem to agree that life is eternal, that we either go to heaven or we go to hell. Again, in Western philosophy and religion, that's a place, that's a location. In Eastern philosophy, it's a level of conscious awareness that you magnetize. So finding yourself in paradise is you've realized it. You, you, you've let everything that is not paradise fall away. But there is no location called heaven that is not right here, right now. And maybe more apparent to you, no place that is hell except right here, right now. What you reincarnate into is different in space and time, but not in terms of your spiritual essence. You don't go anywhere. You're already everywhere, equally present. So when does life begin? It doesn't. It always has been. And uh, similarly, no death. If something lives eternally, how could it have a beginning? It's illogical to believe something could live forever but have a beginning. It's just illogical. If it's going to be eternal, it's got to be eternal on both ends. No beginning, no end is now, always has been, always will be. That's part of the idea of no, no separation. It also means no dualism. In space and time, yes, polarities, dualism, all or nothing is relatively true, sometimes absolutely true, depends on the situation. But outside of space and time and the spiritual energy reality of things, there is no yin and yang. Remember, the, the yin and yang is round, it's whole, it has no beginning and has no end. You just come back around unto yourself. A empirical physical scientist will tell you that as near as we understand physics, if you could get on a rocket and fly to the edge of the universe, you would end up exactly where you started. 
but since our brain is limited to three dimensions, it's really hard to grok that, get your, to get your head around that. So physics and metaphysics agree. Nothing is ever created and nothing dies. You learned in high school the conservation of energy, conservation of mass and energy, that all mass is just energy at a very slow frequency, and you can't use it up, okay? It cannot be created, it cannot be destroyed. Only forms are impermanent, physical objects are impermanent, conditions, thoughts, and feelings all fade in time. And from our understanding comes action and thought, speech, and behavior. This is the meaning of karma. Karma means action. And we're going to talk about right action in a minute. Let's go to point number two. The second step in the Eightfold Path is right intention. Sometimes this is called wise thinking or wise aspiration. Right intention. We heard this in the Sermon on the Mount last week in the Beatitudes, blessed are the pure of heart. And so wise thinking includes feelings, all right? It means good intentions and good motivation. It's goodwill. It's uh, wholesome aspirations and selfless service for the greater good. Setting that separate selfish, self-centered self aside and give your life away in service to others for they are you and you are them. There is no other except in the appearance of things. Buddhists often talk about renunciation. This is part of the second step of right intention. Now, renunciation to a monk is much more severe than Renunciate or a monk or a nun. Uh, Buddhists from the very beginning have always been very uh, non sexist, uh, honoring women as completely equal to men in every respect. Uh, Dalai Lama even said a few months ago, Could there be a female Dalai Lama when he passes? He said, Oh, yeah, definitely. So a monk or a nun. Renunciation is to refrain from uh, having uh, marriage and sexual uh, relationships, for example. It's a more strict diet, never eating meat. The only monks I know that are permitted to eat meat are the Shaolin monks in China, who are uh, warriors. They're warrior monks. Again, they're not aggressors. They're all about self-defense and defending the, the weak. But they are they are badass, man. They are. I'm going to read about Shaolin. I'll look at some of the YouTube stuff on the Shaolin monks. Their training is, again, perpetual. They never stop training. And uh, you never want to mess across <laughs> one of these guys. But to you and me, renunciation simply means letting go of the impurities of pride, of greed, of jealousy and envy, to renunciate anger, just to let it go, and cruelty and divisiveness and, and dropping the belief that happiness is found in the outer world. That's big. Give it up. Uh, understand love as humility and kindness. Again, no separation, no you or me, non-discrimination, that's all part of this. Um, this produces understanding, mutual understanding, reconciliation, uh, also is compassion for the suffering of others. There is such a thing as self-compassion. Forgiving yourself is important as forgiving others. To do no harm, uh, to understand that right thought erases the wrongs of the past. This is forgiveness. 
There's a saying in psychology, it's never too late to have a happy childhood. Once you explore it and understand it, you can forgive yourself, and that erases the past. The third step is right speech. Right speech is to be conscious, um, to inspire, to, to choose to use your speech in a responsible way, uh, to help others, to help them feel good, to, to, uh, to help people be happy, to restore their faith, to feel better. It includes mindful compassion, uh, deep listening, holding the space, just listening. You don't have to say anything. You know, when, when people appeal to you because they need somebody to talk to, to, to vent or express themselves or share their grief or their heartache. It's like, you don't have to give them advice. You don't have to tell them that you know how they feel because you don't. Just, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that you're going through this. I'm sorry for your loss. Just hold that space. Deep listening to be a good listener is such a gift. Part of right speech is choosing not to mislead people, deceive people, not to lie or bear false witness. Probably the worst lie of all is to lie about another person. One of the commandments of Judaism. Right speech includes avoiding or refraining from divisiveness, anything that divides people, gossip. People who talk about other people, that's not a great use of your time, your energy, or your speech, gossiping. Harsh speech. Um, be loving and compassionate. Not only will others benefit, but perhaps <laughs> most importantly, you will benefit. And again, that makes sense when you accept the, the falseness of the separation of appearance. There is no distinction if you help other people benefit through your speech, through your kind speech, then you will benefit. You will know the reward. This is how you be happy and peaceful and loving and compassionate and empathetic. Not by searching the world for the happiness out there. It's not going to be found out there. It's in your mind and in your heart. Number four is right action. See how this flows? Right thought, right speech, right action. You get that downward, notward flow. So right action, similarly, do no harm. This is nonviolence. This is compassion. Uh, your physical behavior should be to support, to protect, and to save. You must avoid killing, stealing, and sexual misconduct. Those are the three admonitions in Buddhism. Don't kill, don't steal and avoid sexual misconduct. You have to decide, if you're single, you have to decide what constitutes sexual misconduct. If you are married, betrothed, or in a faithful relationship, committed relationship, then to dishonor yourself, to, uh, to take up with someone else, to cheat, is sexual misconduct. There are other forms of that we're going to touch on in a minute. To refrain from the use of intoxicants is part of right action. No drugs or alcohol. If you want to wake up, drugs and alcohol <laughs> are not going to help you wake up. You won't find happiness, right? You may think there's something called a happy drunk, but uh, that's obviously an illusion. It's not a happiness you'll even remember once you sober up. And I don't have to go on about the tragedy that comes out of intoxication, out of uh, being drunk or uh, using uh, chemistry to whack yourself out. We call it getting high, but it's actually feeling nothing. It's an odd thing about getting stoned. I'm not going to forbid it. It's up to you. You're, you're adults. You do what you want. But this is not the path to happiness. I'll tell you, in college, in the 60s, LSD opened some doors for me. But it was not a lifestyle that I was going to pursue. 
Once I saw what I saw, I immediately turned to Eastern philosophy. I got a whole new take on so many things in my life. It just was such an eye-opener. But uh, And microdosing was becoming a thing in a controlled environment with professionals. But um, they're just doors that open. It's not a path that you walk. You're relying on them. That's not good. So let's see. Killing includes animals, of course, and this is a problem for a lot of us who have been raised as meat eaters. Um, many vegetarians will not eat eggs or dairy or honey because they're animal products. But there is a whole school of thought that says if you refrain from eating flesh, whether it's fish, anything with a face, uh, chicken, beef, pork, there's still room for you to consume eggs and dairy and honey if it's raised humanely by kind, loving people who love their animals in a uh, humane setting. Uh, so it's up to you to figure that out. And what are you able to do? So what I am able to do, speaking for myself in all honesty, is radically reduce my consumption of meat. But some of us have health conditions that require high levels of protein. Very, very difficult to get all the protein that I need from legumes um, and nuts. And so uh, we do what we can, all right? Nobody's going to judge you or they're hypocrites. Remember last week? Judge not, lest ye be judged by the same measure. And insects, too. The idea of respecting the insect, uh, if it runs from you, it's sentient. And do what you can to release them. If your house is invaded by cockroaches, you're going to have to do something, you know, or spiders. We had an invasion of black widow spiders out here. They're deadly. They got in the house. They could get the cats. They could get one of us off to the hospital. They stay outside. I'm not going to hunt them. But when they come inside, I got to do something. So uh, maybe best to repel them, find a, a way of repelling them without having to kill them. And do what you can. Some people may seem way over the top, like liberating insects from a spider web. Um. I don't know. That may be a bit much. You pour a boiling water down the drain. You just killed three billion microbes, bacteria. So, and you're going to run over ants in your car. And you do what you can do. You have to be realistic about this stuff. Again, it's about the impact that it has on you, not merely the animals that we relate to. Five in the flow, right livelihood. So here we go, right speech and right action flowing into vocation, into career. Best to choose a vocation that helps us awaken, that supports right view, which of course is the oneness of all things. Do no harm in your career. And Buddha was specific about five careers that you must refrain from. Dealing in weapons. Slavery and prostitution, dealing in meat products, slaughterhouse, butcher, raising cattle for consumption, intoxication, selling spirits, selling drugs, selling alcohol, and lastly, poisons. <laughs> I don't know if you're, any of you are in the poison trade, but, you know, insecticides are pretty clear to us at this point as we understand ecology and the environment that we end up poisoning ourselves, that uh, it rains acid and that uh, every cup of water that you draw has uh, what they used to call tranquilizers. Uh, what do they call them now? Antidepressants. The environment is so saturated with antidepressants and even antibiotics 
that uh, they're in the water, they're in the rain. It rains pharmaceuticals. So that's sort of crazy. That's going to catch us in the long run. Number six is right effort. Now we're moving beyond career. And remember, these last three, just to remind you, the first two of the eight steps are about wisdom. The next three, three, four, five, and six, are about ethics and morality, embodiment of virtue. And now these last three, six, seven, and eight, are about the study of the mind. Six is right effort. This is also known simply as diligence to abandon negative mental states, anger and ill will, to cultivate a positive, healthy mental attitude with compassion and wholesomeness. I love that word, wholesomeness. Whole, right? Uh, right effort includes being patient, uh, kind and loving, tolerant, friendly, yeah, generous and forgiving. And replace our self-righteousness with humility. Remember last week in the Beatitudes, blessed are the meek. So right effort then flows into right mindfulness. This is sometimes called the sacred presence. Sac I mispronounced that. Sacred, not sacred. Sacred presence. That's the here and now. Free from judgment. Without attachment, no clutching, grabbing, holding on for dear life. You're already everywhere equally present. And beyond being called the sacred presence, number seven, right mindfulness is also known as the gateway to the deathless. To practice mindfulness, a term that's being, well, it's increasingly popular, increasingly understood in the West. It means really to see things clearly as they truly are. The word vipassana, the meditation where you watch your breath and it identifies the watcher, vipassana is a Sanskrit word that means to see things clearly as they truly are, to see beyond the veil, to be open and non-judgmental, to be aware of your intentions and your motives, the why of things, behind your thoughts and your feelings and your speech and your behavior. You get that flow, an intention becomes a thought driven by a feeling, manifested as a speech and a behavior. To be calm and peaceful in the moment. And to recognize the change in the flux of the mortal world, of the physical world, always in change against an ultimate reality that is non-changing and fixed. And number eight is right concentration. Um, this is samadhi. This is a steadiness of being, a trusting life. There's a crazy idea for you. What if you just trusted life and realized that you could relax and give up the micromanaging as if every day we have to hold everything together, like the whole world would fall apart or your life certainly would go to pieces like Humpty Dumpty if you didn't hold it all together and micromanage everything the source of all of our stress and unhappiness. Right concentration includes a quality of meditation where you experience your connection to the timeless. You abide in the absorption of pleasant states of experience, so-called bliss, joy, again, samadhi, satori, calm, safe, relaxed, focused, and then when your meditation ends, your mindfulness meditation or your concentrated meditation ends, you carry this awareness, this joy, this freedom, liberation with you into the world, into space and time. But a nice place to end this is 
to accept that it's okay for you just to let go, to give up, to surrender in the best sense of the word. doesn't mean not be responsible. It just means give up the struggle part. And only then do you begin to understand who you truly are, who we truly are. Trust life. Trust life. Faith. Faith doesn't mean believe the preacher who wants you to tithe so he can drive a Ferrari and live in a $20 million mansion. That's not faith. It's to trust the whole process. Like everything's fine, just as it is. Let it be. Even above the darkest clouds and the stormiest weather, the sun's still shining. You get up above those clouds, it's still a sunny day. I came across a quote I want to end with by Doug Hammarskjöld, who was the very first Secretary General of the United Nations. And this, gosh, this strikes me as so profound. And I, I'm gonna. We we have about ten minutes for Q and A here, but he said, "In the point of rest, at the center of our being, we encounter a world where all things are at rest." in the same way. Then, a tree becomes a mystery, a cloud a revelation, and each human a cosmos of whose riches we can only catch glimpses. The life of simplicity is simple, but it opens to us a book in which we never get beyond the first syllable of the first page. <laughs> 